everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. So today I want to tell you the second and final part of the fairy tale, The Princess May Blossom. The Princess May Blossom is a story that I found in the Red Fairy Book, a collection by Andrew Lang and his wife, Leonore Blanche Allen. And I'm telling you this story because I've been thinking about the 13th fairy. And this story involves the 13th fairy. So let me just start by giving you a brief summary of what happened in part one, and then we'll move on to the second part of this story. It begins once upon a time with a king and a queen who had one surviving child, a baby girl, who they very much wanted to protect. So they search for the perfect nurse, and in the course of making this selection, the queen insults an especially ugly candidate who then turns out to be the fairy Carabos. Now, Carabos had no love for the king. He claims to have played a practical joke on her when he was a boy. So the royal couple is very worried about averting the misfortune that they know that the fairy is going to want to bring to the princess. They have a secret christening and invite all of the friendly fairies that the queen knows. Five such fairies appear and begin immediately to bestow gifts on the princess. Beauty, cleverness, but also the ability to understand absolutely everything the first time, some other useful things. But before they can finish, Carabos comes down through the chimney and interrupts the proceedings with a curse. I say that she will be the unluckiest of the unlucky for 20 years, says this malicious fairy. Now the fifth fairy, who has not given her gift yet, tries to soften this by suggesting that the princess will then live a very happy life after this unlucky period. The fairies then suggest to the royal parents that it might be best to lock this baby princess away, keep her away from other people for this 20-year period, so the king has a special tower built. Without any windows or doors, you have to go underground through this tunnel, through all these locked gates to get to it, and that's where she lives. Her nurse and her ladies-in-waiting are always there with her, and they tell her about the world, and because the princess has this ability to understand everything, the first time she hears it, she has a sense of the world. She grows up, and she's become this delightful young woman. And finally, it is time for her to marry, and her parents have her portrait painted and circulated, and... A neighboring king, King Merlin, sends word that he would like for his son to marry her. And he 
is going to send his ambassador, Fanfaronad, to bring his greetings to the king and queen and to introduce this idea to the princess. So about four days before the 20 years are up, the princess hears about this. Her nurse and her ladies tell her they're very excited. Oh, you're going to have this amazing marriage. And, and my goodness, I mean, when the, the procession, I mean, when this ambassador arrives, it's just going to be glorious. And, and the young woman really wants to see this for herself. And she insists that she be allowed to do so and cries and weeps and cries. And, and ultimately the nurse, against her better judgment, because she feels sorry for the princess, uh, gets the ladies together and they manage to create this tiny, tiny hole, just large enough for a needle to slip through. A little tiny peephole. And the princess then gets down in front of this peephole and watches the procession comes in. And when she sees Ambassador Fanfarinade on his fancy horse, she's overwhelmed with how amazing he is. She can't imagine anybody being any better. Now, once the ambassador arrives, her parents call for her, and she comes out, and there's a big procession, which is interrupted by a terrible rainstorm and some other malicious actions on the part of the fairy Carabos. But the princess doesn't care because she is in the company of Fanfaronad. And in a private moment, she says to him, Dear sir, you wouldn't know this, but I have decided that I'm very fond of you, and I would actually like to marry you, not your master. There's a great party and all kinds of dancing and a huge celebration in anticipation of this royal wedding. And um, at the end of all of that, the princess and Fanfaronade, who have barely taken their eyes off of each other, secretly steal away. Now the princess takes the king's diamond dagger and the queen's neck handkerchief with a glowing carbuncle in it on this journey, two treasures out of the kingdom, and off they go. They run down to the edge of the water where the princess orders a boatman to take them to Squirrel Island. And that is where part one ended. So I invite you now to sit back and relax and take in the next part of the story, noticing the details that speak to you and capture your imagination. So the princess and Ambassador Fanfaronad were on Squirrel Island. Meanwhile, Back at the castle, day was breaking, and the king and the queen and all of the courtiers began to wake up and rub their eyes and bustle around to finish the preparations for the wedding. The queen asked for her neck handkerchief so that she might look very smart, and there was a scurrying hither and thither and a hunting everywhere. They looked into every place from the wardrobes to the stoves, and the queen herself ran about from the garret to the cellar, but the handkerchief was nowhere to be found. By this time, the king had missed his dagger, and the search began all over again. 
they opened boxes and chests which the keys had been lost for a hundred years and found numbers of curious things, but not the dagger. And the king tore his beard and the queen tore her hair for the handkerchief and the dagger were the most valuable things in the kingdom. When the king saw that the search was hopeless, he said, Oh, never mind. Let us make haste and get the wedding over before anything else is lost. And then he asked where the princess was. Upon this, her nurse came forward and said, "Uh, Sire, I have been seeking her these two hours, but she is nowhere to be found. This was more than the queen could bear. She gave a shriek of alarm and fainted away, and they had to pour two barrels of eau de cologne over her before she could recover. When she came to herself, everybody was looking for the princess in the greatest terror and confusion. But as she did not appear, the king said to his page, Go and find the ambassador Fanfaronade, who is doubtless asleep in some corner, and tell him, the sad news. So the page hunted hither and thither, but Fanfaronade was no more to be found than the princess, the dagger, or the neck handkerchief. The king summoned his counselors and his guards, and accompanied by the queen, went into his great hall. As he had not had time to prepare his speech beforehand, the king ordered that silence should be kept for three hours, and at the end of that time he spoke as follows. Listen, great and small, my dear daughter May Blossom is lost. Whether she has been stolen away or has simply disappeared, I cannot tell. The queen's neck handkerchief and my sword, which are worth their weight in gold, are also missing, and, what is worst of all, The ambassador Fanfaronade is nowhere to be found. I greatly fear that the king, his master, when he receives no tidings from him, will come to seek him among us, and will accuse us of having made mincemeat of him. Perhaps I could bear even that if I had any money, but I assure you that the expenses of the wedding have completely ruined me. Advise me then, my dear subjects, what had I better do to recover my daughter, Fanfaronade, and the other things? This was the most eloquent speech the king had been known to make, and when everybody had done admiring it, the prime minister made answer, Sire, we are all very sorry to see you so sorry. We would give everything we value in the world to take away the cause of your sorrow. But this seems to be another of the tricks of the fairy Carabos. The princess's twenty unlucky years were not quite over. And really, if the truth must be told, I noticed that Fanfaronade and the princess appeared to admire one another greatly. Perhaps... This may give some clue to the mystery of their disappearance. Here the queen interrupted him, saying, Take care what you say, sir. Believe me, the princess Mayblossom was far too well brought up to think of falling in love with an ambassador. 
At this time, the nurse came forward, and falling on her knees, confessed how they had made the little needle hole in the tower, and how the princess had declared when she saw the ambassador that she would marry him and nobody else. Then the queen was very angry and gave the nurse and the cradle rocker and the nursery maid such a scolding that they shook in their shoes. But the admiral cocked hat interrupted her, saying, Let us be off after this good-for-nothing fanfaronade, for without a doubt he has run away with our princess. Then there was a great clapping of hands. And everybody shouted, By all means, let us be after him. So while some embarked upon the sea, the others ran from kingdom to kingdom, beating drums and blowing trumpets. And wherever a crowd collected, they cried, Whoever wants a beautiful doll, sweetmeats of all kinds, a little pair of scissors, a golden robe, and a satin cap, has only to say where Fanfaronade has hidden the Princess Mayblossom. But the answer everywhere was, You must go farther. We have not seen them. However, those who went by sea were more fortunate. For after sailing about for some time, they noticed a light before them that burned at night like a great fire. At first they dared not go near it, not knowing what it might be, but by and by it remained stationary over Squirrel Island. For, as you have guessed already, the light was the glowing of the carbuncle. The princess and Fanfaronade on landing upon the island had given the boatman a hundred gold pieces and made him promise solemnly to tell no one where he had taken them. But the very first thing that happened was that as he rode away, he got into the midst of the fleet, and before he could escape, the admiral had seen him and sent a boat after him. When he was searched, they found the gold pieces in his pocket, and as they were quite new coins, struck in honor of the princess's wedding, the admiral felt certain that the boatman must have been paid by the princess to aid in her flight. But he would not answer any questions and pretended to be deaf and dumb. Then the admiral said, Oh, deaf and dumb, is he? Lash him to the mast and give him a taste to the cat o' nine tails. I don't know anything better than that for curing the deaf and dumb disease. When the old boatman saw that the admiral was in earnest, he told all he knew about the cavalier and the lady whom he had landed upon Squirrel Island, and the admiral knew it must be the princess and Fanfaronade, so he gave the order for the fleet to surround the island. Meanwhile, the princess Mayblossom, who was by this time terribly sleepy, had found a grassy bank in the shade and throwing herself down, had already fallen into a profound slumber, when Fanfaronade, who happened to be hungry and not sleepy, came and woke her up, saying very crossly, "'Pray, madam, how long do you mean to stay here? I see nothing to eat, and though you may be very charming, the sight of you does not prevent me famishing.' "'What? Fanfaronade?' said the princess, sitting up and rubbing her eyes. 
Is it possible that when I am here with you, you can want anything else? You ought to be thinking all the time how happy you are. Happy, cried he. Say rather unhappy. I wish with all my heart that you were back in your dark tower again. Darling, don't be cross, said the princess. I will go and see if I can find some wild fruit for you. I wish you might find a wolf to eat you up, growled Fanfaronod. The princess, in great dismay, ran hither and thither all about the wood, tearing her dress and hurting her pretty white hands with the thorns and brambles. But she could find nothing good to eat, and at last she had to go back sorrowfully to Fanfaronod. When he saw that she came back empty-handed, he got up and left her, grumbling to himself. The next day, they searched again, but with no better success. Alas, said the princess, if only I could find something for you to eat, I should not mind being hungry myself. No, I shouldn't mind that either, answered Fanfaronod. Is it possible, said she, that you would not care if I die of hunger? Oh, Fanfaronod, you said you loved me. That was when we were in quite another place, and I was not hungry, said he. It makes a great difference in one's ideas to be dying of hunger and thirst on a desert island. At this, the princess was dreadfully vexed, and she sat down under a white rose bush and began to cry bitterly. Happy roses, she thought to herself. They have only to blossom in the sunshine and be admired. "'and there is nobody to be unkind to them.' "'The tears ran down her cheeks "'and splashed onto the rose-tree roots. "'Presently she was surprised to see the whole bush "'rustling and shaking, "'and a soft little voice from the prettiest rose-bush said, "'Poor princess, look in the trunk of that tree "'and you will find a honeycomb, "'but don't be foolish enough to share it with Fanfaronade.' Mayblossom ran to the tree, and sure enough, there was the honey. Without losing a moment, she ran with it to Fanfaronade, calling gaily, See, here is a honeycomb that I have found. I might have eaten it all myself, but I had rather share it with you. But without looking at her or thanking her, he snatched the honeycomb out of her hands and ate it all up, every bite without offering her even a morsel. Indeed, when she humbly asked for some, he said mockingly that it was too sweet for her and would spoil her teeth. May Blossom, more downcast than ever, went sadly away and sat down under an oak tree, and her tears and sighs were so piteous that the oak fanned her with her rustling leaves and said, Take courage, pretty princess. All is not lost yet. Take this pitcher of milk and drink it up, and whatever you do, don't leave a drop for Fanfaronade. The princess, quite astonished, looked around and saw a big pitcher full of milk. But before she could raise it to her lips, the thought of how thirsty Fanfaronade must be after eating at least fifteen pounds of honey, made her run back to him and say, Here is a pitcher of milk, 
drink some, for you must be thirsty, I am sure. But pray, save a little for me, as I am dying of hunger and thirst. But Fanfaronade seized the pitcher and drank all it contained in a single swallow, and then broke it to atoms on the nearest stone, saying with a malicious smile, As you have not eaten anything, you cannot be thirsty. Ah! cried the princess. I am well punished for disappointing the king and queen and running away with this ambassador about whom I knew nothing. And so saying, she wandered into the thickest part of the wood and sat down under a thorn tree where a nightingale was singing. Presently she heard him say, Search under the bush, princess. You will find some sugar, almonds, and some tarts there. But don't be silly enough to offer fanfaronade any. And this time the princess, who was fainting with hunger, took the nightingale's advice and ate what she found all by herself. But fanfaronade, seeing that she had found something good and was not going to share it with him, ran after her in such a fury that she hastily drew out the queen's carbuncle, which had the property of rendering people invisible if they were in danger. And when she was safely hidden from him, she reproached him gently for his unkindness. Meanwhile, Admiral Cocktat had dispatched Jack the Chatterer of the Straw Boots, courier in ordinary, to the Prime Minister, to tell the king that the princess and the ambassador had landed on Squirrel Island, but that not knowing the country, he had not pursued them for fear of being captured by concealed enemies. Their majesties were overjoyed at the news, and the king sent for a great book, each leaf of which was eight ells long. This book was the work of a very clever fairy, and contained a description of the whole earth. He very soon found that Squirrel Island was uninhabited. Go! he said to Jack the Chatterer, "'Tell the Admiral from me to land at once. "'I am surprised at his having not done so sooner.' "'As soon as this message reached the fleet, "'every preparation was made for war, "'and the noise was so great "'that it reached the ears of the princess, "'who at once flew to protect her lover. "'As he was not very brave, "'he accepted her aid gladly. "'You stand behind me,' said she, and I will hold the carbuncle, which will make us invisible, and with the king's dagger I can protect you from the enemy. So when the soldiers landed, they could see nothing, but the princess touched them one after another with the dagger, and they fell insensible upon the sand, so that at last the admiral, seeing that there was some enchantment, hastily gave orders for a retreat to be sounded, and got his men back into their boats in great confusion. Fanfaronade, being once more left with the princess, began to think that if he could get rid of her and possess himself of the carbuncle and the dagger, he would be able to make his escape. So as they walked back over the cliffs, he gave the princess a great push, hoping she would fall into the sea. But she stepped aside so quickly that he only succeeded in overbalancing himself, and over he went and sank to the bottom of the sea, like a lump of lead, and was never heard of any more. While the princess was still looking after him in horror, 
Her attention was attracted by a rushing noise over her head, and looking up, she saw two chariots approaching rapidly from opposite directions. One was bright and glittering, and drawn by swans and peacocks, while the fairy who sat in it was beautiful as a sunbeam. But the other chariot was drawn by bats and ravens, and contained a frightful little dwarf, who was dressed in a snakeskin, and wore a great toad upon her head for a hood. The chariots met with a frightful crash in midair, and the princess looked on in breathless anxiety. While a furious battle took place between the lovely fairy with her golden lance, and the hideous little dwarf, and her rusty pike, but very soon it was evident that the beauty had the best of it, and the dwarf turned her bat's heads and flickered away in great confusion, while the fairy came down to where the princess stood, and said, smiling, "You see, princess, I have completely routed that malicious old carabas." Will you believe it? She actually wanted to claim authority over you forever because you came out of the tower four days before the twenty years were ended. However, I think I have settled her pretensions, and I hope you will be very happy and enjoy the freedom I have won for you. The princess thanked her heartily, and then the fairy dispatched one of her peacocks to her palace to bring a gorgeous robe for May Blossom, who certainly needed it, for her own was torn to shreds. By the thorns and briars, another peacock was sent to the admiral, to tell him that he could now land in perfect safety, which he at once did, bringing all his men with him, even to Jack the Chatterer, who, happening to pass the spit upon which the admiral's dinner was roasting, snatched it up, and brought it with him. Admiral Cockhat was immensely surprised when he came upon the golden chariot. And still more so to see two lovely ladies walking under the trees a little farther away. When he reached them, of course he recognized the princess, and he went down on his knees and kissed her hand quite joyfully. Then she presented him to the fairy, and told him how Carabosse had been finally routed, and he thanked and congratulated the fairy, who was most gracious to him. While they were talking, she cried suddenly. I declare, I smell a savory dinner. Why, yes, madam, here it is," said Jack the Chatterer, holding up the spit where all the pheasants and partridges were fizzling and sizzling. Will your highness please to taste any of them? By all means," said the fairy, "especially as the princess will certainly be glad of a good meal." So the admiral sent back to his ship for everything that was needful, and they feasted merrily under the trees. By the time they had finished, the peacock had come back with a robe for the princess, in which the fairy arrayed her. It was of green and gold brocade, embroidered with pearls and rubies, and her long golden hair was tied back with strings of diamonds and emeralds, and crowned with flowers. The fairy made her mount beside her in a golden chariot, and took her on board the admiral's ship, where she bade her farewell, sending many messages of friendship to the queen. And bidding the princess tell her that she was the fifth fairy who had attended the christening, then salutes were fired, the fleet weighed anchor, and very soon they reached the port. Here the king and queen were waiting, and they received the princess with such joy and kindness that she could not get a word in edgewise, 
to say how sorry she was for having run away with such a very poor-spirited ambassador. But after all, it must have been Carabosa's fault. Just at that lucky moment, who should arrive but King Merlin's son, who had become uneasy at not receiving any news from his ambassador, and so had started himself with a magnificent escort of a thousand horsemen and thirty bodyguards in gold and scarlet uniforms to see what could have happened. As he was a hundred times handsomer and braver than the ambassador, the princess found she could like him very much. So the wedding was held at once, with so much splendor and rejoicing that all the previous misfortunes were quite forgotten. The End As I said at the beginning of Part 1, I think one very useful way to reflect on this story is to consider all of the players as energies in your own psyche. We have the masculine and the feminine. We have the naive and the wise. We have the deep self and the ego. We have the ugly and the beautiful. And all of it seems to uh, ultimately result in a kind of alchemical marriage. That image of fanfaronade going like a piece of lead into the ocean puts me into the mind of that tradition. Now I know that some people are put off by the emphasis on beauty in fairy tales and the golden hair and her fancy clothes and the meal and I just like to suggest that those are metaphors, metaphors for the accoutrements, the trappings, the dimensions of self-realization. The last thing that I want to observe about this story is the power of the feminine. Did you notice how all of the major players, all of the action and the transformation that ultimately takes place is in the form of feminine? The princess, the queen, the fairies. If you've ever thought that fairy tales were too focused on male models of heroism, uh, this might be an antidote to that. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, then contact me. And I'd also encourage you to make use of the archived Myth in the Mojave programs that are available on Bandcamp. If you'd like to listen to part one of The Princess May Blossom, for example, you can find it on Bandcamp. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.